James Baldwin, interviewed by Quincy Troop. This is a story of fame. It is a story of celebrity and its consequences. It is, I think, a tragedy, and no more the occasion for retrospective moral judgments than any other biographical canvas should be. Suspending moral judgment is not the immorality of the novel, Milan Kundera wrote, in what could be taken as a challenge thrown down to history and biography, too. This suspension of judgment is the storyteller's morality, the morality that stands against the ineradicable human habit of judging instantly, ceaselessly, and everyone, of judging before and in the absence of understanding. It is not that moral judgment is illegitimate. It is simply that it has no place in describing a life. Elvis Presley may well be the most written-about figure of our time, he is also in many ways the most misunderstood, both because of our ever-increasing rush to judgment and, perhaps more to the point, simply because he appears to be so well-known. It has become almost as impossible to imagine Elvis amid all our assumptions, amid all the false intimacy that attaches to a tabloid personality, as it is to separate the president from the myth of the presidency, John Wayne from the myth of the American West. It's very hard. Elvis declared, without facetiousness, at a 1972 press conference, to live up to an image. And yet he, as much as his public, appeared increasingly trapped by it. The Elvis Presley that I am writing about here is a man between the ages of 23 and 42. His circumstances are far removed from those of the boy whose dreams came true in the 22nd year of his life. It is not simply that his mother has died testing his belief in the very meaning of success. With or without his mother by his side, he would have had to grow up. He would have had to face all the complications of adulthood in a situation of almost unbearable public scrutiny. A young man little different in temperament from the solitary child who had constructed a world from his imagination. The army was hard for him, not just because he was temperamentally unsuited to it, but because it was something he knew he had to succeed at, both for himself and for others. The artistic choices he faced when he returned to an interrupted life were far more ambiguous than the good fortune he had so innocently embraced. And he never came fully to terms with the burden of decision-making that those choices placed upon him. His natural ability to adapt, his complex relationship with a manager whom he perceived not just as a mentor, but as a talisman of his good luck, served him in both good and bad stead. He constructed a shell to hide his aloneness, and it hardened on his back. I know of no sadder story. But if the last part of Elvis's life had to do with the price that is paid for dreams, neither the dreams themselves nor the aspiration that fueled them should be forgotten. Without them, the story of Elvis Presley would have little meaning. I've tried to tell this story as much as possible from Elvis's point of view. Although he never kept a diary, left us with no memoirs, wrote scarcely any letters, and rarely submitted to interviews, there is, of course, a wealth of documentation on the life of Elvis Presley, not least his own recorded words, which, while seldom uttered without some public purpose, almost always offer a glimpse of what is going on within. 
I've pursued contemporary news accounts, business documents, diaries, fan magazines, critical analyses, and the anecdotal testimony of friends and eyewitnesses, not with the intention of imposing all this on the listener, but simply to try to understand the story.